0: Support for this episode of Script Apart comes from Arc Studio Pro. Arc Studio is the screenwriting software used to create incredible shows and movies, such as the acclaimed Netflix animation Arcane. It has a ton of features designed to unlock your creativity on the page, whether you're a seasoned industry professional or a first time writer discovering your voice. Arc is all about minimum distraction and maximum ease of collaboration. There's an outlining whiteboard for mapping out your story automatic draft management for keeping those scripts safe and it also offers real-time collaboration similar to google docs making it the easiest way to run a professional writers room or just to write that great idea for a script that you have with a friend try it today head to arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart where you can get $30 off a pro account by using the code friends at checkout click the link in today's show notes to take your screenwriting to the next level Support for this episode also comes from ScreenCraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted thing. Fortunately, ScreenCraft is here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures starring your favorite writers to hands-on career coaching with their excellent writer development team. These guys offer the best screenwriting competitions designed to help your talent shine, Featuring judges that really know their genre, from top literary reps to Oscar-winning screenwriters. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Winners have been staffed on shows at Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, the list goes on. They've also sold scripts and been hired to write films for the likes of Universal, Lionsgate, Blumhouse and Hulu. So if you're an aspiring writer, what are you waiting for? Don't wait to check out ScreenCraft today. Visit ScreenCraft.org or click the link in today's show notes hello and welcome to another episode of script apart my name's al horner and this is a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and tv shows each episode a brilliant screenwriter breaks down their first draft of what became a beloved movie or series This week, did you guys know that we owe one of the most moving comedy dramas in recent TV history to, of all things, a Monster Truck Rally? In 2015, my guest today, the talented Jen Statsky, was en route to Portland, Oregon to film a comedy sketch at the Monster Jam Rally. En route, she got chatting with her road trip accomplices, fellow comedians Lucia Anniello and Paul W. Downs. They spoke about the history of unfairly treated women in the entertainment industry, Female comedians like Singing in the Rain star Debbie Reynolds, whose careers were derailed by misogynistic practices in Hollywood. On that day, in that car, a TV show was born that's already won a ton of awards and is nominated again at this year's Emmys. I'm talking, of course, about the amazing hacks. The show, starring Jean Smart as a comedian in the twilight of her career, and Hannah Einbinder as the young comic sent to write new material for her, is as funny as you'd expect from Jen, whose previous TV writing credits include The Good Place, Parks and Rec, and Broad City. But it's also tremendously emotive. She and fellow series creators Lucia and Paul have crafted a show that's both heartwarming and heartbreaking in its portrayal of an unlikely female friendship that makes each party look at the world a bit differently. In this episode, Jen talks about the thousands of titles explored for the show before they landed on Hacks, the evolutions in the streaming market that have allowed for shows like This One and Barry to so ambitiously blend comedy with drama, and how some of the show's most memorable moments to date were written. This is a spoiler-filled conversation if you hadn't already guessed, so if you're yet to see Hacks in its entirety, I'm talking about both seasons here, then you may want to hit pause now, go away and watch the show, it's amazing, then come back as we dive into every plot point. Two quick things to mention before we jump in. Number one, if I sound slightly different in this episode, it's because as I mentioned in last week's show, I'm currently on the road. I'm in Los Angeles at the moment with some work projects and I do not have my regular mic set up with me. So if I sound slightly different in this episode, that's the reason why. We're working really hard to get the audio quality back up to our normal standards. Thank you so much for bearing with us in the meantime. The other thing to say before we jump into the episode is if you like what we do and want to support the show and help us continue to grow, you can join us on Patreon, where for the price of a single monthly cup of coffee, you can get ad-free episodes and all sorts of exclusive bonus content. Head to patreon.com forward slash if you want to get involved there. We really appreciate your support. Okay, that's enough out of me. Let's dive into it, shall we? This is the amazing Jen Statsky talking about the first draft secrets of Hacks. Thank you so much for tuning in. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demeck. Hey, Jen. So great to chat with you today. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm looking forward to this. I absolutely love this show, Jen. And uh, Oh, thanks. I mean, I'm also not alone in that, as the the show's recent Hall of Emmy nominations kind of attests. (laughs) Um, Congratulations on that, first and foremost. Thank you.
1: Thanks so much. Thank you for watching the show and supporting it.
0: To what degree, Jen, has the popularity of Hacks kind of exceeded your wildest expectations? I asked the question because it occurred to me in preparing for this conversation that certainly around the time you were developing the show, there can't have been many comedies in the same vein to look to as a blueprint for success, like comedies led by a female actress above a certain age that confront the disposability of women in the entertainment industry. That's a, a story that Hollywood seldom yeah, allows to be told. Sounds really
1: funny, right? <laughs> That's a, an award-winning comedy pitch right there. Um, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, to answer your question, like so incredibly, unbelievably humbled by the reaction to the show and and how many people watch it and have been kind and reached out about it. And, and yeah, I think, you know, it was one of those ideas that even though you look at it and you go like, well, on paper, I don't know, that's not like a sure thing in terms of for all the reasons you just laid out. It was an idea, you know, like the three of us, me and Paul W. Downs and Lucian Yellow, my co-creators, like we were really the first audience for Hacks in the sense that when the idea came up, we just really loved that world and the idea of these two women and how they would play off of each other. And so we really just wanted to see it like we wanted to see it really bad but felt no one else was probably going to make it. And so we made it. And so I think we're just like incredibly happy that people kind of were as excited by the idea as we were when we initially thought of it.
0: And the show has obviously coincided with a with a certain kind of cultural reckoning, reassessing the way that women yes. uh, are tossed aside by the entertainment industry, really, and, and turned into punchlines. I know that you personally were really fascinated and well, fascinated is kind of the wrong word. Mortified is probably the right one. Mortified by the treatment of stars like Debbie Reynolds, who I know you researched extensively for the show. Do you think people's reaction to hacks was supercharged by something in the cultural ether, like around that topic? Like it seemed to arrive in this moment where we as a society have been kind of reflecting on the mistreatment of people like Amy Winehouse and Britney Spears. Has that been a part of what's made this show resonate so emphatically beyond just how well written it is, how well realized these characters are?
1: I hope so. I, I hope that we as a society are kind of having this reconciliation with how we treated women in the public eye for so many years. And and by extent, the way we do treat women in the public eye is simply a, a symbol for how we treat women in general in society. So it's not just a problem that women in the spotlight have. And yeah, I think the show certainly wanted to shine a light on that. And we happened to come out um, a few years after the, you know, Me Too movement and a lot of a lot of the reckoning with, oh, yeah, why did we paint that woman as a villain? Why did we why did we immediately turn her into a punchline? And so I, I do think that kind of the culture becoming aware of that and realizing how wrong that was and how these women never really got to actually tell their side of the story. I do think that was a, um, a help, uh, you know, a, a helpful thing for society just in general, but also hopefully maybe made the message we were trying to send with the show a little more uh, resonant for people.
0: I've followed your career for a long time, Jen, going back to your days at the onion. And um, (laughs) historically these shows that you've worked on have been, been out and out comedies for the most part, often with like a splash of drama, but hacks feels maybe like you tipped the balance the other way. Like, I, you know it's hilarious. It is a comedy. I laugh my way through every episode. but the show also has this pathos and is committed to exploring these characters' flaws, their regrets, their desires, all these different things. I think there is an argument to be made that it's your first drama. How was it making that transition as a writer going from comedy being your priority, presumably when you sit down to write scenes for a show like Broad City or Parks and Rec? It seemed like it was a different assignment this time.
1: Yeah, definitely a different tone than anything I'd written or worked on before. But I think honestly, it wasn't. As much of a challenge as you might think, because I think from early on, Paul Lucci and I were really locked into, you know, we all, as we watch the things we watch, the three of us, we have very similar taste and we love things that are really grounded and real, like something like a, you know, a better call Saul or something which is there's tons of drama there's tons of comedy but like it's also at, you know at the heart of it is like these real human emotions and it feels really grounded in that and so we knew right off the bat that we wanted to make a show where the tone it could be hard funny it could have jo- like obviously have jokes and especially because these women are telling jokes because they're comedians so we knew we would have that aspect but we really wanted to do a character study of of this woman and the woman that comes to work for her and all of our characters in terms of their internal lives and what they've given up for work and the sacrifices they've made. And so even though I had never in my, the shows I worked on quite wrote something this tone it's actually the tone I really love and the tone that I feel like is the most representative of the types of things that I want to watch and want to see just the the way it can capture both the duality of life the the really really funny moments but then also the really really kind of sad poignant tragic ones.
0: Yeah, it seems like we're in a good moment for that at the minute. Like, uh, It was fun for me watching season two of Hacks in tandem with season three of Barry this summer. And Mm -hmm. the line being blurred between comedy and drama in both those shows, it seems like we're at a point where we can explore that duality on screen in a way that I don't know that we've necessarily done before. It seems like a bit of a breakthrough moment for that.
1: Yeah, I think like it is a a really nice effect of the fact that there's 40,000 television shows now is that, you know, <laughs> there used to be three networks and there like 10 shows, 20 shows, I don't even know, like a very small number of shows. And it was just more binary. Like a comedy had to be funny. And sure, like there's plenty of network comedies that have a lot of heart and are huge influences on me. But like it was a little more rigid in the tone. It needed to be a certain tone and explore certain storylines. And same with drama. It needed to be a specific kind of tone. And I think the fact that now television is a place where people are given a longer leash to make the types of shows they want to make and tell the stories they want to tell, I do think there's just more room There's more room for all different types of shows. And thank God there's more room for all different types of voices and different people we get to hear from. So I think you're exactly right. I I don't think Hacks necessarily is a show getting made 10, 15 years ago. And so, yeah, I I feel really lucky that we landed, especially we landed at a place like HBO Max, where our executives just really got what we were trying to do and, and have been like so incredibly supportive of the creative from day one.
0: Is it tricky? When you're making a show that as you say hasn't really been made before it wasn't getting made 10 15 years prior it must be a mix of daunting and exciting to kind of be embarking on that task like when i look to some of the shows you've been involved in before parks and rec had the office as this really natural precursor that proved Mm -hmm. that format could work there was an audience for that format when done right as well you know you didn't have that this time what was the kind of like trepidation I suppose excitement Mm -hmm. what was the emotion going into doing something that felt a little bit more uncharted
1: yeah I think the unchartedness of it made us nervous in the sense that at least I'll speak for myself it made me nervous in the pitching of it in the will this sell will anyone actually make this because as we said before like a show about a woman of a certain age in Las Vegas teaming up with a young writer isn't necessarily like the most broad sound, you know, oh, that'll attract a huge audience. The unchartedness of that idea and that concept and that world made me nervous about, like, will we ever get it on the air? In terms of the storytelling, it was actually a benefit. It was, it was something that made it really exciting to us, I think, is that it felt very fresh. It felt very like this is a relationship that I haven't really seen before because with the exception of a few shows, like something that happens a lot, and you know, this is a reason why so many people, when I worked on Broad City, I think were so were such fans of the show, was that yeah. for so long, women on television, the the roles are like mother, daughter, and that's their relationship to each other, or oh, it's um. They're the wife. They get to play the wife or the girlfriend. And so we're slowly, uh, sadly, slowly evolving the types of women that we get to see on screen. And this is, you know, this is a working relationship between two women. The thing that brings them together is their work. A thing they're talking about a ton of their time is their career and their work. And that's that's fairly novel. You know, I I grew up in. And. I didn't, you know, there weren't shows like that even when I grew up. And so I think that the unchartedness of saying, like, oh, yeah, we're getting to depict two women working together in a way that, like, hasn't really been seen before, like working together in a creative field, too, which is like its own specific thing, it just made it feel fresh and interesting. And also, I think the fact of the matter is, is that we're talking about a character that you don't get to see a lot for so long, you know, obviously. Women of a certain age have been not featured in media, and so the fact of the matter is, is like there's a lot of like really interesting, juicy, wonderful stories you can tell about a woman Deborah Vance's age, and and so for us it was just like wow, great, we get to put these on television. Like, so the unchartedness in that way was a huge advantage.
0: And was it refreshing for you? I don't want to make any presumptions about your writing process, Jen, but you know, presumably on a show like. The good place or Broad City, yes, you're moving forward with plot. Yes, you have a story to tell. But you know, perhaps when you sit down to um, write a scene for a show like Hacks, in comparison to those shows, you know, the, the driving force each time isn't to find the biggest laugh, isn't to find the funniest joke. You're taking part in a different task.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit less. You know, Parks and Rec was like a super joke dense show. There were a lot of jokes per page. Like, it definitely it's a little bit different in that way. And yet, I do think if you look on the page at Hacks, the scripts we write, we very rarely have a scene without a joke. There's never like just straight drama scenes. Really, maybe we've done some, even in our most dramatic scenes. I can think of a joke we put in. So, but yeah, it is definitely it's a different rhythm than when you're writing Parks and Rec or a Good Place script.
0: And on the surface, the show appears to be a classic kind of odd couple comedy. You have these two characters separated by generational differences with dramatically different worldviews. Who are then thrown together by circumstance and they need each other even if at first they're kind of reluctant to admit it there are ways in which hacks kind of fulfills that comic setup and then there are ways in which it turns it on its head which um hopefully we can get into but if you wouldn't mind taking me back Jen, to that initial conversation with paul and lucia en route to the monster truck rally it it sounds like (laughs) from what you were just saying there that it began as a character piece the idea for the show began with deborah what were some of those early conversations about who Deborah might be? And at what point did you realize that the best way to tell her story was to pair her with another character in that kind of odd couple premise?
1: Yeah, we basically... Monster Truck Rally is mentioned because, and this has been covered, I'll tell the listeners in case they haven't heard, which of <laughs> course they haven't heard, it's not a famous story, is that Paul Lucci and I came up with the idea for Hacks in 2015 while we were driving up to Portland, Maine, where Paul was filming a sketch for his Netflix sketch special, The Characters. He was filming a sketch at a Monster Truck Rally, and Lucci and I were along to help him like just pitch jokes and make it. and. On that ride, we were just talking about women in entertainment and and specifically female comedians and really wonderful ones who never really seem to get as much credit and praise and their dude like their male counterparts did and and just why that was. And also, you know, I think the idea of the Ava character came in for a couple of reasons. One is because, you know, especially Lucina is as women in our mid thirties, like we benefit so much from the women who came before us, the women who, who did stand up and did comedy and got, it was in writer's rooms where they were the only woman in a room of, you know, 18 men. Like we really benefit from the paths that they um, carved for us. And so it was part of it, like, oh, us, us wondering like, oh, do we Do we recognize that enough? Do we talk about that enough? Do we do we even fully understand it ourselves? And so it was partly that. And it was also partly the fact that I think with we wanted to explore this character of Deborah Vance and this larger than life figure and the ecosystem that kind of forms around a very famous, powerful person. But, you know, the truth is, is Stories. The good stuff happens where there's change and growth, and you have to butt up against something and then come out better on the other side. And so, I think there's a show you, still worth watching in Deborah Vance struggling to maintain relevancy and and further her career, but. The truth is, is like, it's really the show to us is a love story between these two women. It's a love story about how much they love each other, about how much they make each other better, and about how they love the work. And they have this unique love language that is their bond over their creative work. And so for us, we did want to tell this story of a woman of a certain age who's a a larger than life comedian who hasn't quite got her due and, and her changing and growing. But we also really wanted to depict... A unique, special, creative relationship that we hadn't really seen before. So, how did you then
0: end up creating Ava in response to Deborah? Like, who was she to you? And what were the ways in which you were reverse engineering her to a degree from Deborah, from Deborah's worldview, from her quirks to create conflict, to create comic potential?
1: I think that, like, you know, it's interesting. We definitely, she kind of just became a character that we were excited to talk about and write stories for just as organically as Deborah honestly it wasn't like oh Deborah's this way so Ava should be that way because then they'll be in conflict over it like it was it was more Ava feels like a character you know there's there's parts of all three of us in her like granted she's in her mid-20s so she's like a decade younger than us but There are definitely parts of all of us in her. As a comedy, you know, we are comedy writers, so she is a comedy writer, (laughs) and so that's somewhat autobiographical. As big as Deborah Vance is as a character, we also want the show to feel like real and grounded. So we really just wanted Ava to feel, yes, interesting, but also really real and grounded. And like, oh yeah, that's what I know comedy writers to talk and be like. That was kind of how she formed. And and yeah, just someone who maybe, you know, I think we also were really interested in exploring like we've said before, like women on the fringe, women who the entertainment industry has pushed to the side. And we were interested in the seduction of Hollywood and how people can get really like lost in it and their value system can become all about Who's cool and who's do, who's having a, the cool Hollywood party and and what's the hot person to be working with this this year or whatever and so we wanted someone like Ava to have been seduced by that and fallen into that and fallen victim to that and then in a split second realize you can lose it and you can get pushed to the fringes just like Deborah Vance did and okay I find myself on the outside now and I've fallen prey to this not great value system how do I grow and be better? And, and yeah, that was kind of the jumping off point for her. And and also the last thing I'll add is she is a a queer woman um, who's openly bisexual. And I think there wasn't, you know, wanting to do a a good job depicting a character like that and making sure that we weren't, I don't know, being considered about it. And it, it was never her sexuality, never like a punchline. Like, you know, there's, Certainly tropes and media is, exist of like how bisexuality isn't is not maybe real or, or there's a um kind of I think evil bisexual trope is something that came, we came across when we were like researching stuff and so we just wanted to make sure that we you know portrayed a queer character who felt real and representative and and yeah give make that do, do right by that as well
0: yeah some of the scenes in which Deborah and Ava, are discussing the concept of queerness and coming from their different positions and trying to meet in the middle. That's among my favorite scenes oh, in the entire show. Yeah. So beautifully those, written. Those,
1: thanks. Those are some of our favorite ones to write as well, because, you know, so much of exactly what you just said, meet in the middle is such a key aspect of it, because I think that there's, and I've said this before, but I think there's a bad version of hacks where one person is always right and the other's wrong. And it's like, a, it seems like she's just lecturing her and it's like, you silly boomer, you don't get it or whatever. Like, (laughs) I I think that could happen. And so I think for us, our kind of North Star is always like, They should each be a little bit right and a little bit wrong, and they should each have a POV that makes sense. And we can we can argue for Ava's point she's making as much as we can argue for Deborah's point she's making. And I think that allows those scenes to feel nuanced and interesting and like they're trying to find that middle ground or they're fighting over it, but maybe eventually get there, which I think hopefully feels more interesting to watch than someone just like, than they're just being pedantic and someone being lectured to. And also I think hopefully, hopefully feels hopeful, (laughs) Uh, which like feels hopeful in terms of people being very different, having different perspectives, having different um, places they come from, and yet finding middle ground.
0: Yeah. I think the bad version of hacks that you suggested could have been made or certainly a simpler version of the show would have had these characters, their differences, accentuated to a point where it's just about creating conflict between the two. It's just about that disparity, but instead there's, and it only really occurred to me kind of getting to grips with some of the scripts, getting, uh, you know, watching the show again, there's a lot shared between the characters, despite their differences. Like when we meet Ava, her career is kind of in the gutter because of a joke that she told online they're both hanging on to their careers by threads they're united by the ways in which they've been made disposable by their industry in which women are kind of constantly on precarious ground in ways that their yeah. male counterparts uh, you know maybe aren't can you tell me about sort of like finding the common ground between these two characters in this odd couple setting and sort of threading that in it's so subtly done
1: Oh thanks. Yeah that you're exactly right that is a big part of these characters as well is the fact that And, you know, that's a classic odd couple thing, right? Of like, oh, they clash and they're so different, but they don't want to admit it. But actually, they're pretty alike, too. You know, like that is (laughs) we are following like kind of classic odd couple uh, moves there. But I think it's really satisfying. It's satisfying when the audience realizes that they're actually not as different as they may have thought at first. And so, yeah, that was always exactly what you're saying this idea of being on precarious ground in Hollywood and having you know getting pushed to the fringe and then what do people on the fringe do to stay afloat like that was always very much so intentional and a big theme of the show and so stuff like that that her and Deborah um share is like extremely important to them finding common ground and I think also the thing that's important, is they're both very out- obviously very outspoken people, which I think is also really important because Deborah Vance is the type of woman who doesn't take shit. And so we, you know, this was an incredibly difficult thing in the casting process too, is finding someone who you believed could hold their own against Deborah Vance. Cause Jean is such a powerful presence as an, you know, it's why she's so good as an actor. She really feels so intimidating as Deborah. She's a larger than life, really powerful figure. And so we needed to craft a character who we also believed could stand up to that type of person. And I think initially our way into that was making Ava someone who, yes, is entitled, but also I think has a, one thing that is like a reason I think she's able to give Deborah a lot of advice and a lot of moral advice and kind of guide her throughout this season is I think Ava has a really strong sense of justice. She's able to speak out about things when she feels they're wrong. And so that was also, you know, giving that to her is a similar thing. That's another similarity they share. They're both very outspoken. They may be outspoken about different things, but they're both outspoken and they're both loud and they're both kind of unapologetic for it. And that is a very important similarity between them as well because i think deborah vance would just if someone is like quiet and meek and not sure of themselves i think she eats them alive
0: (laughs) hey this is al just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week if you've written a script and wondering what step to take next well you need to check out we screenplay We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources for emerging writers like virtual events where your questions are answered by leading Hollywood professionals, it's also the industry's number one script coverage service. With incredible 72-hour turnaround and format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, We Screenplay is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their career, from first-time writers to Oscar winners. So if your script is ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned and staffed as a direct result of their real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops. Don't stay stuck, We Screenplay wants to help. Head to WeScreenplay.com to find out more or click the link in today's show notes. Support for this episode also comes from Arc Studio Pro. Screenwriting to me is all about immersion. I want to stay immersed in that dreamy, fantasy-like state while I weave my story and craft my characters. I don't want to be distracted by anything and I certainly don't want to be thinking about text formatting. Arc Studio Pro understands that. It's so intuitive, it has a minimal and dare I say beautiful interface that allows me to stay completely focused on the story I'm trying to tell. To take your screenwriting to the next level, visit arcstudiopro.com forward apart where you can either download a free version or get $30 off a pro account to unlock its full host of amazing features. Use the code FRIENDS at checkout to get that discount. That's arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. To what degree were you um looking for Uh, You know, a a character piece as a challenge and as an opportunity to grow as a writer when you kind of came across this idea. I was wondering the first time I watched Hacks, whether instinctively because of your comic background, you know, initially there was a version of this show that was cooked up where it was more in keeping with the comedies you'd worked on before. But then perhaps like there was just something tragic. That felt baked Mm -hmm. into who Deborah was and the hardship she'd gone through that kind of meant that this had to be more grounded. It had to be different tonally. How did that happen? Did it take a while to find the tone for the show?
1: It's an interesting question. I think that what it is, is the reason we never really considered going a more strictly comedic version is we wanted to tell this woman's story and tell this woman's struggle in a very honest, real way. And I think it's hard to tell an honest, grounded portrayal of what a woman of a certain age in the entertainment industry's life is like without being real and honest about the, you know, abuse they suffered and how difficult it's been for women for A really long time, including now, 2022. Um, (laughs) And so I think that we wanted to make sure we were being honest and truthful about that. And so we knew that we wanted to talk about really, you know, kind of heavier things and the fact that this woman was maligned in the press and she had her career ripped out from underneath her and she had an inappropriate relationship like with her therapist who was abusing her. Like all these things that in our research as we read about women like her, these crazy things kept coming up. Like, oh my God, I can't believe. Then that business manager stole money from her and that man assaulted her. Like all these things kept coming up one after one after another and I, and I'm thinking I'm reading I'm like well if one of these things happened to me I would curl up in a ball and and I would <laughs> give up and so many of these women had to be tragically had to be Teflon they had to be they had to keep dealing with this quite frankly bullshit and keep going and their career is a testament the fact that you if you know about them that is a testament to the fact that they kept going after all those things they dealt with. And so I think we just wanted to not sugarcoat that, be really honest about women's struggles in this industry and just in general and do a truthful depiction of it. And and to be honest, I also, one thing where we've been very touched by, and I certainly was during the Me Too movement, was wanting to honor the women whose stories we don't know, the women who had to put up with all that and, and for very good reason, said, I I can't keep doing this. I won't keep doing this. It's too, you know, like, and so we also, I think if you sugarcoated Deborah's life and you didn't make a grounded real version of, of the, of what she's been through, you wouldn't be honoring just how difficult it was for those women to come up in that environment. And, and I, we just didn't want to do that. We wanted to, to honor what these women unfortunately had to put up with and do to get where they, where they are.
0: Yeah. And what's so well observed, I think, is, you know, that endurance test of just staying stubbornly in the game and enduring the hardships of Hollywood. It has an effect and it kind of calcifies you as a person. And it, totally. there's, there's a coldness and hardness to to the character that is so just feels so real, feels so like lived in. Thanks. There's a quote that I read of yours in which you describe one of the benefits of working as a trio is that, you know, there's always a tiebreaker when arguments arise, Jen. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it kind of got me wondering, what were some of the things that you were having to uh, use a tiebreaker on over the course of the development (laughs) of the show? You were pretty quick to understand what this was going to be tonally, pretty quick to understand there were two characters involved here. Mm -hmm. But what were the kind of things that you three were debating and entertaining as potential avenues for this show that perhaps, you know, didn't make it that you jettisoned along the way?
1: That's a great question. Um, We've never been asked that before. It's a great question. Yeah. I mean, you know, what's funny is we do use the tiebreaker, but at the same time, something that happens is like we often before we get to a tiebreaker, I think a tiebreaker is used in a like, okay, this we need a decision on this tomorrow. What is it? Okay, you know, <laughs> the the truth of the matter is, is whenever there's like a a lot of times we are really aligned creatively, and the things I like and they like, you know what I mean. Like again, not always. It's not like I pitch something and they always love it, but it's more so. It's just like we know the zone we're all going for. But so basically what happens is I think more often than not, if like two of us like something and the other person is like, I don't know, I don't totally buy that. We, I think do a good job at trying to dissect what it is about it, that the other person isn't vibing with if the two of us are, and then Mm. trying to like adjust for that and make it like, okay, well, well, then what if it's this and trying to get the pitch to a place that that person goes like, okay, yeah, that is, that works. And so I think that that, It's less so using tiebreakers and more so being willing to hear why someone maybe isn't vibing on something and go like, okay, well, maybe we can tweak it this way. Does that help? And it's like, yeah, usually it does. Which I think is it's it maybe sounds laborious to some people, but I, I think it's like a kind of a nice system in the sense that it's like every idea. And granted, we have a fantastic writer's room as well who do this, but When every idea has to be kind of approved by the three of us, there's like a built-in audience, right? It's like I pitch something and then it's like two people who are saying like, yes, that's good or whatever. And if there's a flag to raise, if someone's like, I just don't buy that, that might be something an audience member is going to say. It's like, I don't buy that. And so we're crowd. Sourcing where the three of us get to kind of fix it together, which is something that I really like about writing. You know, it's why I like writing in television in general is so collaborative. And and I can't imagine writing alone because like I am fully aware of my blind spots, or I'm not even aware of the blind spots I don't know. I have, you know, like that's that's how that's how blind spots work. And so I, I think like to write something and not have someone else to check in with to be like, is this right? Is this feel truthful? Does this feel like I, I just can't imagine it. So, so yeah, that that's our collaborative process. I I do feel makes the show much better. It's
0: very democratic. I love that. <laughs> to find that truthfulness, to find the storylines, the character motivations that feel real, that feel true. What did you have to throw out to get to that point? Were there kind of early plot lines that you kicked around for a while and were like, that doesn't seem authentic? Were there other characters who were in the mix in some sort of mm-hmm. early iterations of this show? Like what changed?
1: It's a good question. You know, early on, there was no one thing I remember was that there was no Marty character. There was no casino owner played by the wonderful Christopher McDonald. That was not a character in the show. And someone along the lines, I think actually one of Paul Tree's agents, Dan Ehrlich at ETA, um, gave a note about that type of character, feeling the need for someone like that and in retrospect, I am so glad he did that. And I'm so glad we listened. And I'm, because one of the things that people responded to so much was seeing Deborah get to have a really full, realized life, which also meant like a love life and a sexual life. And so that Marty relationship is really important to kind of fleshing out who Deborah Vance is. And so that was something that I think we like looking back, like, I I don't think we had a, I guess, other than like Paul's character, Jimmy, it's like, we didn't have a straight man in the show. (laughs) It was all women and, and queer people. And that is just the way it was. And we were all set to do that show. And then, you know, I think realizing like, right, this would be an important person in Deborah's life. And you know, that is something also, like a, a lot of when we we're lucky to have people who love the show and and tell us what they love about it. And a lot of the women who are around Jean's age who watch the show and love it, they always speak to the Marty relationship. They really like seeing that. They like seeing Deborah get to be desired and desire someone and deal with the complications of a relationship like that. And and so uh, I, I'm very glad that that character, not the least of which for the reason that Christopher McDonald is wonderful and an incredible actor and also just like a lovely person to know. I'm very happy that that character came into our world.
0: And simple question, but was Hacks always the title? How did you land on that? And what does that word mean to you?
1: A very funny question because the title was quite a journey. It was always called Hacks, like as Paul Lucci and I were developing it years ago. And then once we finally sold it, I think there was like a little bit of, I don't know, is that it? And then we heard from the network and studio that the title, we weren't going to be able to use it because there was a like CBS show about computer hackers named Hack or Hacks or something. And so it was off the table. And so we went through. Hundreds of thousands of titles, alt titles, trying to figure out what this show could be called. When we when we shot the first season, actually, it was still untitled Gene Smart project on all the call sheets. We really didn't know. And Jean loved hacks, she always wanted to be hacks. I remember she was just like, Let's can we just call it hacks? And we were like, We can't legally, we can't. And then something happened. We kind of made our final plea of like, we do think hacks is the best still. And they I don't know, the The legal teams got together and figured something out and we were able to call it hacks. And, you know, hacks, I think it's it's what it is, is like it's a derogatory term that is kind of used to write someone off. Oh, like eh, they're a hack. And this is a show about two women who the industry wrote off and find themselves on the fringes and then have to work their way back together to get better and grow and become closer. And so that's what it means to me.
0: And a little while earlier, you mentioned the word autobiography. You know, I'm curious, like to be able to write these characters with such authenticity and to lend them that groundedness, are there any lived experiences of your own or any of the three of you that you were able to feed into these characters? Or was the empathy with which you would realize these characters, was that based completely out of your research of the real life people who went through these ordeals? Mm -hmm. Like how much... What's biography is in the show, Jen?
1: Yeah. Um, I think that like really what it is is we we definitely researched a lot, but we didn't really ever, you know, it never is to the point of like, oh, this is how Deborah should talk, or this, you know, anything like that. It's more, I think if it feels authentic, it's because partially these are it is a relationship, a creative relationship between two comedians. And you know, we ourselves are comedy writers. And so we have come up in the comedy world and we know how comedians talk to each other and we know how writers talk to each other. And so I think part of what it is, is that authenticity. We are lucky. It is a real "write what you know scenario where we know how writers talk because it's us (laughs) and we know how comedians talk to each other. And so that I think hopefully is why it feels authentic.
0: Have you felt that precariousness that the uh, the characters themselves feel?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I think, I don't know, the longer I work and the more I, I am lucky to accomplish, like I still am like, oh yeah, I don't know that that precariousness feeling ever goes away. And sometimes you feel more precarious the higher you get, ironically. Like I I remember, you know, my first job was being a late night writer on Jimmy Fallon and I remember for like, and I was very lucky. I got that job very young. I was like 24 or 25, but I remember for the years before that struggling in New York, being a, a, you know, I worked at a restaurant I was doing a little bit of stand-up and then quit pretty quickly. Um, but I was doing like sketch comedy and improv and, and writing scripts. And I had gone to film school and I was really, really unsure of, you know, what the, what the future held. And as, as you are in your early twenties, um, and I remember thinking like, oh, but as soon as I get, and I, and I was very insecure is the other thing. I was very insecure about my writing and my ability. And I remember thinking like, as soon as you get, oh, you just got a professional writing job. If you were just like paid to do this, then I would feel amazing. Then all those insecurities, they'll go away. And then I realized when I got that job at Late Night, I was like, oh, I've never felt more insecure. It got worse. <laughs> and that is I don't know what that is to be honest I guess the stakes got higher and that made it scarier but you know I think I I think like you'd be a fool to think oh I've made it in this industry and now it's smooth sailing and nothing will ever not, I'll always be on top like it, it is an industry where especially comedy like it favors the young and it favors kind of the thing of the moment. And it's fleeting the thing of like, oh, this person's hot now. Like it's fleeting. And so that's scary, but it also, I think, can serve you can use it as a tool to remind yourself, like, right, that stuff is so fleeting that if I try to hold on to it or build my whole world around it and make it the be all end all of everything, I will ultimately be incredibly disappointed. And so, Perhaps all I can do is lean into the relationships I'm making on the things I'm making and and lean into the work and feeling good about it, regardless of the outcome. That is kind of all you can really do once you realize just the fact that it will always be precarious.
0: And when outlining a show or a season of a show like this, what's your North Star in terms of how you lay out episodes? Because, um, well, yeah, you'll have to clear this up for me, Jen, because like the first time <laughs> I, I experienced Hacks, I felt full of admiration for the way that so many of the plot lines, so many of the episodes, they all... A ladder up in a way to the sort of mm-hmm. theme of the show and the idea of exploitation. You know, there's that great episode um in season one where, you know, there's the storyline involving the lecherous former club boss and his lecherous successor. In episode mm-hmm. nine, there are those two producers who are kind of interested in hiring yeah. Ava because they want to exploit her stories about Deborah. Mm-hmm. The first time I watched it, I felt or I sensed this kind of intention where you were making sure everything that happens to these characters, every place they go to in each episode speaks to the larger message of the show. But then it occurred to me while rereading these scripts that maybe that's naivety and maybe actually just like the entertainment industries. You don't have to go far (laughs) to find those themes because exploitation is everywhere. (laughs) How are you laying out those episodes and what happens to these characters over the course of a season?
1: Well, thank you, first of all, for noticing that. I mean, certainly we are very intentional with theme and we do talk a lot about well, what are general, like, what are the ideas we want to explore? What are, you know, in terms of yeah, like that episode where there's a dealing with a ass- assault in comedy clubs. There's idea or in episode two of five, like competition among women back when Deborah was coming up in the stand-up world. Like there's certainly ideas we like to explore and say, Oh yeah, that's kind of it's I want to explore this and do an episode about this and thematically address this. So it certainly is intentional. But to your point, when it comes to the fact that there's a lot of like show business exploitation floating around in the in the show, like, yeah that is even, I think it is intentional, but it's also like you're, it it is just kind of a reality. You know, it's interesting. A lot of times people say or ask, they say like, is hacks a satire of the entertainment industry? And like, I I I loathe to step back and kind of make judgments on my, like say what my work is or isn't. I, I, but I've never really thought of it as a satire. I don't think that that is what our goal is. Our goal is to kind of like, I think just produce, present a real grounded story of these women and so i think what you're you're hitting on is like there is a lot of that in the entertainment industry and it can be really unpleasant and i think exactly what i was just saying before about you can realize that there's a lot of unpleasantness in this industry it's a it's really competitive it's really cutthroat it's really precarious as you said your position is always sh- on shaky ground and the point is is that Again, it's about the relationships and it's about leaning into that. And so we always want to, I think, surround Ave and Deborah with that, those worlds, but they get to lean into each other and they get to find salvation in each other. And they won't always know to do that and they will struggle with that. And sometimes they will go away from that. But that is kind of what we want to wanna to depict. So it's intentional for sure. And it's also intentional that we're saying like. Yeah, yeah. Focus focus on each other. Focus on your relationships. Focus on the creative work you do with someone you love creating with.
0: I'm just going to skip through some of my favorite moments from the show. And hopefully you can tell me a little bit of, of how you got there, how you arrived at that creative decision.
1: Sure. Love to.
0: One of the great moments in season one, the end of that season, Deborah kind of discovers that there's a thrill and a release to being vulnerable and telling comedy from a place not of persona, but of vulnerability and of truth. And um, mm-hmm. I was curious whether that was something you experienced for yourself, whether you had to come to that realization at some point in your career. And you discovered that actually when you're revealing a part of yourself and it can, it's funny, but it's also real, that, that yeah. there's more meaning, there's more value in that.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, there, there wasn't a specific event that made me or, or Paul Lucia realize that, but I think we all feel, you know, some of Paul and Luccia did this all the time on Broad City, like so many Broad City storylines are inspired by real life. And certainly in hacks, like I, I find the things that I'm, Proudest that we've done on hacks are feelings and emotions and things that I connect to that feel like, yes, I love this story we're doing because I've felt this way and I've experienced this. And I, and not just me. Like, I think it's you know, it's the thing of wanting it to feel universal, which is what allows the audience to connect with it. And so I think that what what Deborah hits on, this thing about being truthful in your comedy and your work is incredibly. True for us too. The show, you know, we've said this before, but the show is about a creative collaboration, and the three of us are are very close friends, and and it's about that creative collaboration too. So in a lot of ways, we're we're writing about ourselves that way, and so yeah, it's certainly what Deborah discovers about doing doing the more truthful thing that comes from real emotions and feelings and experiences you've had. It does feel more satisfying, I think.
0: Season two begins with the pair kind of heading out on tour and it struck Mm -hmm. me that this is such a clever setup because well, firstly introduces places, visuals, textures that take you out of Las Vegas and allow you to do something different from season one. Mm -hmm. It also opens out to you the comic potential of them going to all these different places and how would Deborah react to all these places. Can you talk to me about, like, how and when you arrived at, like, the idea of, let's get these gals on the road, let's send them on tour?
1: When we, like, arc out our seasons, a big thing is, like, figuring out all the major tentpoles of the story. And certainly one of the biggest tentpoles is, like, well, what's the ending? What are you building towards? And so... We knew really early on when we were building out season one that it would end at Ava's dad's funeral and Deborah would show up and then she would say, you know, I bombed, but I loved it and I'm taking it on the road with you, I hope. Like that was always that was very early on figured out. So since that was early on figured out, it was like, well, then I guess it's a roadshow season two. (laughs) And (laughs) and as we you know, explore that more and more, we really fell in love with the idea of doing it because exactly what you said, it's such a good story generator to have these two women out on the open road And we loved the fish out of water aspect of it. We loved the idea of seeing Deborah, who season one you get to see up in her, you know, Vegas mansion that she's very comfortable in. Getting to see her out of her comfort zone, you know, weird giant strip mall parking lot, or in a mall, or having, you know, any of these weird road stories that happen when you take a road trip. Like, were really exciting to us to imagine Deborah doing them. And then also really exciting to imagine the fun of Deborah being, roughing it, quote unquote, but also <laughs> building an amazing custom tour bus with LED light therapy bits. So there was just like a lot of inherently fun things that came to us as we were realizing the like, end of season one. Okay, we really are going to do this. This is We're going to do this and it's going to be good because it's going to allow us to do a lot of these fun stories.
0: Season two ends in... Such a moving way. Did that ending come to you as quickly, Jen? Did you know that that was your destination as early as you did when you were prepping season one?
1: We did. Yeah, that was another one. So yeah, in the finale, the one, the only... Deborah lets Ava go. And we knew pretty early on that that is how it would end because we basically wanted to arc out this seasoned journey for Ava where she does this terrible thing to Deborah. She sends this email with personal information about her and it really wounds Deborah and it really fractures their relationship and that Ava would be put on the path to redemption season two. She would be doing her penance, so to speak, to make it up to Deborah. We knew early on that Deborah would let Ava go, and it would be part of Ava's journey in her arc that she is doing penance. She's done this horrible thing against Deborah, And so all of season two, she says, I'm going to be good, Deborah. I'm going to make it up to you. And in doing that, you know, again, always wanting to explore the ecosystem around a very powerful, famous person, these people who are larger than life, like the people around them can really lose their sense of selves in service of this very famous, very powerful person. And that is Ava's journey, season two. She kind of becomes all about Deborah, devoted to her and devoted to doing the work. And in that way, she, you know, loses herself and isn't really working on her own stuff and is doesn't take credit for co-writing Deborah's special. All these little things that Deborah on her journey, has realized that, oh, I have some flaws of my own that I need to be honest about. I need to be honest about them in my special. That's why my special is called My Bad. One of those flaws is that I I consume people. I take up all the space. And so very much so their arcs kind of come together that way, which is that Deborah is realizing I take up too much space. I can make people's lives all about me and look at this girl that I've done that very thing to right now. And she knows in that moment that the right thing to do is to let her go, is to let her go and pursue her own dreams and and do her own thing. And also because it's not just one thing ever, our actions are rarely just one motivation. She's also scared. She's also a character who has issues with intimacy And she's a little bit scared of how close her and Deborah, uh, her and Ava have gotten. And Ava calls that out. She says, you're just scared. And she's not entirely wrong. We knew very early on in the arcing out of season two that that's the moment where it would end.
0: And there's such sweetness and such tenderness, such finality, I think, to that scene that. A lot of people I'd love to say I was not one of these people, but I was a lot of people yeah. <laughs> kind of had a, a slight moment where there was a wonder, like, is that it? Is that the story kind of brought to a close? But from what I understand you, when you pitched the show, you pitched an ending and that ending mm-hmm. is something else. It's something still to come. Yeah.
1: yeah. We, we pitched um, the show and, and we kind of talked about a number of seasons and how it would end in the very end. And yeah, this is not how it ends. And And, you know, we were we were flattered that people thought it was an ending because we were like, oh, I guess it was emotionally satisfying or something (laughs) Um, and and totally get it, get why it seems like it could be an end. But, yeah, there's still there's still more story to tell because, um, you know, I think the question remains how, if and how these women will find their way back to each other and also Will Ava be able to do what Deborah set her free to do? You know, what is next for Deborah now that she has this very successful special and she's told her truth? But what now?
0: Just finally, Jen, finding a way for these characters to keep entwining despite that ending, despite the fact they no longer have a professional relationship. Are their two stories going to be continued separately? What can you tell me about season three and, and where you're at I with I
1: don't. I feel like if I answer this, I'm giving stuff away. So <laughs> I, I, I don't know that I can.
0: That's completely fair. You can just make something up, something ridiculous. Yeah, they go to space and we'll run that instead. <laughs>
1: I'll just lie and be like, no, it hasn't been hard. Writing is never hard for me. It's always, (laughs) it's always easy. No matter what I'm trying to write, I always know the right answer immediately. So no, it hasn't been hard.
0: (laughs) Writing is easy. There you have it listeners. Jen, this has been so much fun. Thank you so so much for joining me today. Such
1: a pleasure. Thank you for the wonderful questions.
0: Oh, it's been such a joy. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Is there anything beyond hacks, you know, you'd like people to know about or any parting message that you have for listeners who perhaps have been, you know, following your work as I have for a long time and have been really inspired by your career?
1: Um, no, no parting messages. Just um yeah, I think for anyone listening who's an aspiring writer or, or writing and and trying to trying to get stuff made and and get stuff through like i think the the message of hacks is is very much so to like lean into loving the creative work and also loving who you get to make it with so i think like finding your people out in your creative community is really important and i i encourage you to do that and um yeah nothing else except just spread the good word of hacks spread the gospel of hacks watch hacks (laughs) on hbo max (laughs)
0: Jen, thank you so much for this. This has been so much fun.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.